Hey everyone, welcome to the Creator Economy Club, where every week we host top creators, founders, and investors to chat with us about a topic that we love. How are creators building their empires? And this week we've had VidCon's founder, Jim Lauderback, to chat with us about all things creator economy. Not only is Jim the GM of the world's largest creator event, but he's also the most knowledgeable person in the industry and definitely one of its most genuine and enthusiastic advocates. Enjoy the show. Jim, you're, you're essentially uh, um, coming from the tech world. Initially, you co-founded uh, PC Magazine, which in the 90s, uh, for the people who didn't know, was the tech bible. Um, and then you, you became the CEO of uh, Revision Tree, founded by, uh, by Kevin Rose. Um, and you, uh, uh, through Revision Tree, was hosted the, the Dignation Show, uh, which is also how I got to know about Dig and, and entered in the tech world personally. And this got acquired in 2012 by Discovery. Um, and then you went on uh, becoming the, the GM at VidCon. Uh, that's one of the, the many companies that, you, that you've led. Um, and it's fair to say that you're at the, at the intersection of, of both worlds, the tech world and the creator world. So we've decided to split the interview in two parts. Um, and then at the end of the, of the session, uh, we'll make room for the audience question um, during the last 15 minutes. And so my first question for you um, is essentially how you started working uh, with video coming from a magazine in the print world. Yeah, so the video stuff, actually, I, I um, started working at magazines even before PC Magazine, where I was editor-in-chief. So at uh, uh, PC Week, uh, which was a weekly for the PC industry. And in like I started working there in 91 or 92, running their labs and all their testing. And then in 93, the company, Ziff Davis, decided that, you know, this video thing was going to be big and that they should start doing TV. So interestingly enough, we did a Saturday morning show on CNBC. I think it started in 93 called The Personal Computing Show. It was, this is crazy. It was sponsored by Gateway Computers, the guys who did the little cow computers, which they're not around anymore. They're now part of Acer. And it was with Leah Laporte and Gina Smith. And, you know, early geeks, Gina went on to do stuff at ABC as a reporter and Leo Laporte as a famous tech podcaster and videographer and uh, with Twit. But yeah, really early on, and I was the guy doing reviews. I was reviewing products. I was doing the you know unboxing and other things that people are doing now. But it was back in 93, the first time that kind of stuff had been on television. Wow. And so, I mean, that, that was uh, sort of like a long time ago. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks. A long time no, ago. No, no, right? no, no, because no, I, I mean, I'm kidding you. <laughs> yes, no, it was good. actually. I, I, no, because the thing is that like I feel already like, uh, like an old timer in, in the tech just because I started in the tech world in 2005 makes me already like someone <laughs> that knows things that people have forgotten. And so, and so for me, uh, you know, like uh, hearing this story and, and hearing also, I, I listened to the podcast, um, you did. Uh, a long time ago also, and I think it's 2013. Um, uh, uh, and I don't remember the, the name of the, of the host, but you were, you were talking about a uh, dig nation, which, which is, you know, essentially one of the first internet talk show, um, that became massive at the time. Um, I, can, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that actually, uh, uh was integrated in, in, in dig the, the company and, and how it, uh, how it started? Because I think this part of the, of the internet history is, is a bit forgotten now, but it's actually fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of history in, um, 97, um, the video that we've been doing as if Davis morphed into a cable network that we launched called ZDTV in 98. And I was the head of content, uh, and, and program, head of content, uh, and editor in chief, I guess, uh, at ZDTV. So this is a U.S. cable network that ended up going worldwide. One of the employees there on one of our shows, uh, screensavers was Kevin Rose as a, as a production assistant. I don't know if it was his first job, could have been his first job. Anyway, Kevin came in. We had a couple of other people there, including David Prager. And, you know, ZDTV, Tech TV was great, but, you know, it, 
it, and, and then it sold to Paul Allen and then it wasn't. And then it sold to Comcast and they merged it with G4. And by then I had moved on to PC Magazine and Extreme Tech and Kevin and David Prager left at some point there. And in, I don't know, 96 maybe, Kevin started Dig. Um, Kevin and, and David Prager also started Revision 3. So Revision 3 was the video arm of what Kevin was building. And it was designed really to replicate what we did at ZDTV slash Tech TV, which was video for geeks, TV shows for geeks, but streaming it over the internet. But at the same time, he built Dig, which, you know, for those of you who aren't as familiar with Dig, it's very Reddit-like. Uh, it was actually Reddit before Reddit was out. And so Dig started to really take off. And as part of that, as uh, it started taking off, he and one of his friends that he knew from CDTV, Tech TV, G4, Alex Albrecht, decided to do a show on Revision 3, the sister company, which was fledgling, uh, called Dignation. And the point of the show every week was that Alex and Kevin would sit on a couch, drink beer, and talk about the stories that had bubbled to the top of Dignation, of Dig, every, every week. And Dig, just like Reddit, had a voting system. It was voted up or down. And so they would sit there, look at the top stories and laugh about them and read the comments and drink beer. And it, it was a video podcast. Originally, we distributed it on iTunes, uh, as a video podcast when video podcasts came out. So it was both audio and video, but it was really a video podcast. So the history of Dignation is it was something that Kevin and Alex and David Prager cooked up to try and push the video company Revision 3 that they'd built. And so that that's kind of where it came from. And so if if I remember well, you you were also distributing this or hosting this on, on BitTorrent, right? Yes, we were we were distributed on BitTorrent as we built Revision 3. So fast forward, I think a year later, and Dig was taking off. They raised a ton of money for it. Kevin really had to start really focusing on Dig. And they also were in the process of raising money for Revision 3. And as part of that, they really needed someone to come in and run it. So they came back to me and, you know, obviously we worked together. We all knew each other and brought me in as CEO of Revision 3 as we raised a big round of money. So the point being there is that uh, we had a CTO that we brought on board who was big in the uh, in the BitTorrent and the, the open source community. And so we started really institutionalizing, delivering all of our shows on BitTorrent as well as on iTunes. And that led to a, so a really a big distribution, super distribution strategy where over time we ended up putting our shows across a wide variety of networks, including Break and Rever and Blip and Vio. And uh, I could go on and on. But, you know, one of the other ones we started putting our shows on was this little company called YouTube. <laughs> well, and that's that's the funny part because um, I remember you were saying that you know at that time and maybe a little bit after that, uh, but not so long after that, um, YouTube was starting and not, I think not a lot of people remember this, but they started to fund uh, the creation of like a hundred channels coming from the traditional media world, thinking that by increasing the the level of content on YouTube. Um, would make the platform more adworthy because at the time, if I recall, like YouTube was just a place where you would put stupid videos. And so advertiser didn't want, absolutely didn't want to be uh, associated with this. And, you know, like the comparison with now where YouTube, instead of like funding traditional media content is essentially trying to do the other way around and funding creator digital native first content. Like how, how do you, did you see that? coming or or because it's it's been like a big big change from that time to now like almost like 10 years yeah well look here's what the early days of youtube were like then and sort of the and we we morphed revision three into being entirely youtube in i think 2009 uh where we basically moved everything to youtube we were still distributing other places but clearly youtube was our future and 2009, and then the first VidCon happened in 2010. And the creators, the, yes, there was a lot of, you know, um, cats riding Roombas and people getting hit in the nether regions with uh, sharp objects. But there was also an emerging class of creators that were really good, and some of them still really good today, including people like Phil DeFranco and Rhett and Link uh, and, and a whole bunch more. And 
even though these people were doing amazing content and really engaging audiences and driving great views and building great communities, to your point, the advertisers didn't really get it because it was everything that wasn't produced by television or movie famous people was considered user-generated content, and it was a bad word. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think it was 2011, 2010, 2011, they came up with a fund. And you think of all the funds that are happening across all the exactly. social platforms today, right? But this was really the first fund. And uh, I don't remember the details. It might have been $100 million, whatever it was. It was a lot of money at the time. And they did. They brought in a bunch of uh, traditional stars, but also some of the original YouTube stars as well. Like Phil DeFranco got a bunch of money to start something called SourceFed, which was super successful. And so there was a mix of traditional and uh, traditional television and traditional media and some of the YouTube stars, because what they wanted to do was to allow them to do projects that they didn't have money for, but if they were given the money, could be great. Now, it turns out most of the successes were not the things that uh, the famous people did at the time. Most of the successes, in fact, were things like SourceFed from Phil DeFranco. But it was a great way to get more content, more, um, I, it really more eyeballs on what was going on and increase the visibility of the great stuff happening on YouTube. Wow, and that's that. Yeah, that's what you know is really funny because I think it was a hundred million, and and like they they just invested like a million in uh, each, uh, uh, you know, like uh, different like, each channel, channel yeah. operation. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, and we're going to talk about that a, a bit later. But it's yeah, it's such a, a big difference. Um, and and before we talk about you know the more um, you know recent stuff happening in the career economy, and also talking about your podcast newsletter, and obviously talking about VidCon, um, I wanted to just. I'll ask a little bit about revision tree and you know like a lot of people now uh, in 2021 have heard about MCN you know they've they're like oh yeah MCN this MCN that but not a lot of people like from you know the new generation of the creator and creator economy uh, wave like really know exactly what MCN is so like, I would love for you to just Talk to us about Revision Tree and how it actually uh, um, was placed in this whole landscape of NCM, uh, MCN and MCN history. Yeah, so as YouTube started to expand dramatically and rapidly, and as more and more creators came on board and more and more creators started building fan bases, YouTube was not the easiest platform to use. There were a lot of issues and problems and, and opportunities for people to understand it and help others. And YouTube had a creator program, and they had a couple people in that creator group, but they did not have enough people to support everybody that needed help. So one of the ways that the MCNs developed is companies, Maker, Fullscreen, Machinima, Style Hall, us at Revision 3, we were sort of that first line of support for YouTube where we would go sign up creators, they'd become part of our network, their channel would go under our umbrella. And we would, we would pay them based on the revenue that, that they got at some percentage of the revenue. It would come to us and we would pay them that. But the hope and the dream was that we would also do brand deals for them and we would bring, bring brands in and we would, we would just channel support and be the conduit to YouTube for them. And that worked out for a little while, but as it turns out, A, it's hard to say to somebody that, you know, you make $100 on YouTube, but we're only going to give you $80 of it and keep $20 of it for all this other stuff we do. Oh, and we signed you to a three-year deal, or in some cases, no names being named. One of the networks was signing people to lifetime deals, which is okay. illegal. Um, so there was some shady practices going on. And so the MCN model really at a moment in time was worthwhile, but overall, and it did great stuff for a lot of the creators, but as it went on, it turned out it was not a great model uh, overall. And so some of them kind of morphed more into management groups. Some of them morphed more into production groups. Some of them morphed more into, you know, content development at a smaller scale. But that whole concept of we're a multi-channel network and we exist under YouTube's umbrella, even YouTube got tired of it pretty quickly. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, is it fair to say that they thought they would be able to scale that model to make it like as a, as like a more like a tech media company and that essentially they, they choked on, you know, etc. And that maybe they should have aimed for more like a, a traditional sort of like record label or music label, but for creators instead of like this, this tech valuations that then, you know, for sure disappointed in, in the results. Yeah, I think there's some of that, but I think also you look at it from a YouTube perspective where they didn't have the infrastructure to sell everything. Okay. They didn't have the products to bring that in. I mean, we were the ones at Revision 3 that we really innovated around the in-show sponsorships and the model where in the middle of the show, somebody say, oh, today's show is brought to you by Audible and Audible is a great place to download all your books and listen to them. Uh, and that ended up being adopted by you know, first of all, a lot of the other multi-channel networks, but then by YouTube themselves. And over time, YouTube realized, why are we letting, why are we giving this money away? Why aren't we handling all of the ad deals? Because when you've got multiple different ad sales teams all trying to sell the same inventory, it gets super messy. And so in the end, when YouTube looked at it, I think, and look, I don't, I don't know, I'm not YouTube, but they said they we're leaving a lot of money on the table. We're all pitching the same clients now. And there are some of these MCNs that are actually doing negative things to these creators that are kind of the lifeblood of us. I think on the MCN side, you know, we wanted a piece. We all wanted to build these networks, um, and we did. But it turns out that just blindly bringing in 10,000 or, or so creators and adding them to your network and writing them checks every month and, you know, bringing all that stuff in, you can't really pay attention to 10,000 people at scale exactly. and build that in, even though it seemed like a good platform idea at the time. So that's why you do see most of the MCNs that are still around have morphed into one of those models of either, like you said, like a record label or more looking like a television network or more looking like a management company. And that is more of a path to success. Okay. And so when, uh, um, I mean, because you exited uh, to, to discovery, uh, if, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that was in 2012. Um, so when did the shift from you working at discovery to you joining the VidCon team and then becoming their general manager, like how, how that transition happened, uh, over that time? Yeah. Well, it all goes back to 2010 when we were building revision three and we were, we were focused on tech and science and video games and a couple of the sort of geeky, techy sort of creators out there that we were reaching out trying to bring into Revision 3, well, two of them just happened to be Hank and John Green, who are the Vlog Brothers, who were early success. There were a bunch of others as well. Now, Hank and John wanted nothing to do with MCNs. They were pretty smart. Most of the, most of the science bloggers didn't want anything to do with MCNs, which in retrospect was probably pretty smart. But in the process of talking to these guys and wooing them and getting to know them, heard about Hank was going to do this thing, VidCon. And I was like, wow, we needed a face-to-face -face event. It seems like it's a little bit, you know, if you think about it, it's a little counterintuitive. You're doing online video and you're building communities via YouTube and you're doing it all virtually. Why the heck do you need to get together face-to-face? -face? Well, it turns out none of these creators had really met each other. They'd never met their biggest fans. And Hank's brilliant insight was we need an event to do that face-to-face. -face. So the first event, first VidCon, happened in LA in Century City at what was then the Hyatt in the basement, about 1,400 people. And, you know, I knew about it. I'd been talking to him about it. We were one of, we were the, one of the handful of sponsors that sponsored the first one. I was one of 30 or 40 people that spoke at it. And it was, uh, it was amazing. And so as, as it went on, as VidCon went on every year, we at Revision 3 leaned in a little bit to help with some of the more B2B content and the more creator style content about, you know, how to make better videos, how to do sound, how to do lighting. And even after, after I sold to Discovery in 2013, in 2013, 2012, we sold 2013, uh, Hank and John and then, um, Brent Weinstein, who's, who handled sales and still does as, as, uh, now he's one of the top guys at UTA. He was always at UTA, the talent agency. Uh, he, they, they were like, we need to get big media into VidCon and we can't crack that nut. Um, how about if we figure out a way to get discovery there? And I'm like, you know what? VidCon in 2013 was the weekend before Shark Week. And, and we had this 60 foot mechanical shark that they were using to promote Shark Week that year. And so I convinced discovery to bring the 60 foot mechanical shark to VidCon. 
and it would, it had mechanical jaws and it would crush things. Like we crushed the source fed couch. We crushed uh, a <laughs> surfboard. We crushed iJustine's iPhone for those of you who remember that on the OG side. And so, yeah, that was, that was really fun. I was still, you know, obviously running uh, revision three, then discovery digital networks at discovery. But in 2014, when I left at the end of 2014, you know, like a lot of times when you go sell a company, you have a non-compete for a little while. And I had a non-compete for about a year. And I couldn't go do video again, but I could go do events. So yeah, I called up Hank. I was still friendly and working with, you know, we give advice to each other every now and then. And um, I said, I'm not really doing anything. I'm kind of bored and need any help with VidCon. And at that time in 2015, he had been, for the 2015 event, he had been planning to to launch a new track. There was the industry track and the fan track launch a creator track to help creators build better content, et cetera, et cetera. You know, precursor to all the training you see on the creator economy now. And he said, how would you like to come in and run the industry track and really differentiate it from everything else and from this new creator track? And I was like, yeah, I got nothing else to do. I'm just sitting around here in Pacifica watching the surfers. So why not, um, you know, I'll do that maybe for a year and then I'll go get another job, do something else. So I started doing it. It was so much fun that I just kept doing it. I did it for three years. And then at the end of the, the event in 2017, he came to me and said, look, we built this company over seven years. It's great. We have no investors. We have no debt. All the risk is on me and John, his brother. And we need to either raise money or sell. You've done this before. How'd you like to become CEO and you know, either sell the company or raise money? So it's not all on us. And you know, we can start, we can keep they started doing some international expansion, but really the vision was to grow VidCon around the world, which I totally bought into. And again, I was in a sort of similar conversation, like, well, I've been working with you for three years doing the industry track. It's a lot of fun. I'm doing some consulting, but I'm not really doing anything else. And yeah, okay, sure. That sounds like fun. So I did. I signed up. And um, five months later, we closed the deal with Viacom to purchase VidCon. And you don't like, it's impossible to know how much, right? Hey, what's it, that? Oh, to know how much? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was, let's just say this. It was a great return for everybody involved. Yeah, well, that's, that's a perfect way to say <laughs> How many times have you heard that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot, but that's fine. Like, I, I'll definitely use that that one in one time in my life. So uh, I'll think about <laughs> all of those times that I've heard them. No, but, um, to, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, it's been evolving, you know, really like from exactly like you said, like this sort of uh, YouTube in real life meeting for the first time. It's like, hey, what's up? You actually exist, et cetera, creating the beginning of the community. And now... It's the, it's the, it's the biggest event, uh, uh, that basically now, uh, goes even beyond, you know, just video, but goes to creators in general, right? Even if it's super focused on video, it's becoming like the main industry event, uh, for this whole, uh, for, for this whole creator world. And, and so like, what's, what's new now? Because, and, and in this question goes, you know, really two specific, uh, sub questions is one, the international expansion. If you can tell us uh, a bit more about it, because, you know, we've seen VidCon Mexico with VidCon Abu Dhabi, et cetera, et cetera. And two, the internet expansion, because obviously last year, which was supposed to be the 10 year anniversary of VidCon couldn't happen in real life. And so you switched to a VidCon now, uh, online remote experiment. Uh, and yeah, if you can tell us about like those two sort of like expansion, uh, ways a little bit more. Yeah, and it's really three things. So I'm, first, I'm going to start with um, uh, talking about just how we expanded beyond YouTube because, you know, you sort of alluded uh, to yeah, that at yeah, the yeah, beginning. Yeah, so, so no, no. And so we, we were very much a YouTube-only show until 2014, 2015. As I brought the industry track in and started thinking about how we look at it overall, I said, you know, we have to be more than just YouTube. And Facebook had started to do video and it was starting to spread to other places so I really tried to bring in everybody doing cool stuff. You know, Snap had just launched and, and, and Twitter was thinking about it. So I went out and, and for speakers, I recruited as many people as I could because I wanted to get them there for the industry track. But also, you know, I knew that once they saw VidCon, they'd want to be part of it. So it's funny because in 2015, I couldn't get anybody from Facebook to speak. I tried so hard. But Fiji Simo, who was running video at the time, brought a couple of her team to VidCon was like, well, we're not going to speak, but we're going to check it out. You know, I remember the same thing happened with Twitter and other people. And the next year, they were so blown away that they sponsored, they spoke. And we saw that with a number of different platforms. Like Musical.ly, I think, was 
at VidCon for the first time in 2016. I, I still remember the Musical.ly stage. Uh, they built their own stage on the show floor. And Jojo Siwa on stage, you know, doing lip syncing to video and dancing at the age of like, she, was, she must have been 12 at the time. And it was revolutionary. And, and it was just so, uh, it was like the un-YouTube. And, you know, Vine came and gone. I, I think in 2016, I was like, Hank, when are you going to do VineCon? And of course, by 2017, it was mostly done. But uh, we expanded beyond YouTube first. And then over the past couple of years, we've expanded even beyond video. So we are now really about, I mean, and our tagline is the magic of creators in real life. And it is community-led creation of all types. So podcasters, comic books, novels and authors, all of those creative, you know, community-led creations and creativity that can happen where you can build your own audience on your own without gatekeepers. VidCon celebrates it. Um, shapes it a little bit and allows a place where people can connect with each other, build businesses, and hopefully we can push it forward. Now, when you think about international, on the international side, it was pretty clear as we started building VidCon that one of the power of commu- powers of community-led media is you don't have to go to where the gatekeepers are and have somebody give you permission to create media. You don't have to go to New York, London, LA, Sydney, uh, wherever around the world, and uh, you can sit wherever you want and start creating content and put it out there and build an audience and build a fandom, build a community, and in many cases, build a life. And that becomes from your avocation to your vocation. And so as we saw that develop, you know, and Hank and John started doing this first, they realized that VidCon is everywhere there is community-first media and an audience supporting it there should be a VidCon. And when I came in in 2017 as, C- as CEO and started running the company, sat down with the team and did a strategic planning exercise where we said, okay, where do we want to be in 20 years? And sort of work back to where we wanted to be next month. And one of the things we came up with was we want to have a VidCon on every single continent in the world, except of course, Antarctica, where penguins hadn't learned how to use cameras yet. That's and so, coming. That's- it's coming. Uh, and so that was sort of a, a big, you know, 10-year goal, 20-year goal. One of the things that selling to Viacom allowed us to accelerate that goal, and and then this ties into your third question, we actually just did our first VidCon in Africa, and we have now delivered on that goal of a VidCon on every continent in the world a couple years early. But we did that through our digital VidCons. So... You know, in 2019, 2020, we, in February of 2020, I'll draw the picture for you. I'll paint it for you. We did VidCon in London. It was great. It was a big success. The 22nd of February, this COVID thing was running, starting to run around the world. We're like, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be weird. A couple of weeks later, we get back. Everything's shut down and we start getting really good at a skill that I never thought we would be good at, which was canceling and postponing shows. But as part of that, we said, look, our audience is still there. The VidCon promise is still there. People still want to connect with their creators in real life. But our real life is sitting in front of our computers looking at Zoom. So we said we could do a virtual event in three days and 100 Zoom calls and call it a year. But instead, we're like, no, let's rethink it. And let's do things every week, 10 or 15 sessions, performances, Q&As, discussions, even meet and greets virtually. And we'll do this all summer and we'll see where we are at the end of the summer. We did it. It was an amazing success. We had like, you know, more than a million people checked into our sessions. We had people from 170 countries around the world coming to see what we did. We were primarily building it in the US. And so even, you know, we started continuing it in the fall. And even as we started going back to, to planning face-to-face events, we kept the cadence going more like four or five things a week. But we've also been launching VidCons around the world as in the places where we've either been launching VidCons face-to-face or where we'd like to. So we have VidCon, um, our, our VidCon now, as we call it, from Latin America, sourced out of Mexico. We have VidCon now for Asia, sourced out of Singapore, and VidCon now in Africa, sourced out of South Africa, uh, with more to come. So that's kind of how that progression has happened. Well, I mean, it's fascinating. And like, just to unpack what you said initially, because I mean, that's music to my ears. And, and, you know, if you spend five minutes with me, 
uh, I'm going to talk about it. And essentially what you were talking about is what I call the post-permission world where, you know, you don't need the permission from anyone to either build something, distribute something, uh, or learn something. And, and that's, you know, if, if I, if I understand you correctly, uh, the intention beyond, beyond VidCon, maybe not initially, but, you know, over the years is to become the main conference of this post-permission world to celebrate, uh, those creators who didn't need the permission from anyone. And so it links perfectly to, to a question that I wanted to ask because, Obviously, you know, VidCon and, and, you know, the, the, the content world and entertainment world by, by extension is uh, mainly coming from Los Angeles as like a, 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 the central point. But, but you're based in San Francisco and you are coming more from like the tech world. And, and I, I know both worlds as well. And I, I know one, you know, San Francisco that just is about permissionlessness, just like build code and, and build empires. And LA is more about like, hey, you know, like get an agent and maybe you're going to convince someone to give you the, the seat for a movie. I mean, like, the, uh, like a, <laughs> a gig for a movie, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think about the, the, you know, those two sort of like mindset now a little bit meeting each other halfway with the creator economy? Like where, you know, can, can you talk a little bit about that and like where you think, you know, this is going to go? I have a lot of thoughts on that. We can talk about the ages. Um, First of all, I love the post-permission world. I'm stealing that and I will credit you. <laughs> yes, please. Um, that's, I think it's, that's a great way to put it. Um, but yeah, look, I'm, my roots are in technology. I'm a geek. I was a programmer. I mean, I love technology still and, um, moved to San Francisco because we were launching ZDTV slash tech TV, stayed and did startup and, and other stuff and never left. VidCon was started in Montana because that's where Hank lived. So even though we now have a big presence in LA and we're owned by a company based in New York and LA, I think, I think you're right about LA as being a place where people go to get into that sort of manager agent world. I think one of the reasons why LA became a hotspot for creators and it really happened in the, in the early to mid days of YouTube was because that's where that infrastructure was. That's where the money was, but it was also, that's where the, there was a, I guess, um, kind of enough of a group. There was a tipping point. There were so many creators there that you could work together, you could collab together, you could um, build things together and the ecosystem, the community built up. But what I think we're seeing now is that those ecosystems and communities are now building up in that way of um, post-permission creators in various parts around the world. So Atlanta, for example, and we leaned into this a little bit with VidCon now earlier this year, there are a number of creator houses in Atlanta. There's a lot of great content being built there. In many ways, Atlanta is becoming a great place to aggregate yourself together with other like-minded creators and build something that's greater than the sum of just what you can do. But we're also seeing technology start to support that. So look at something like PearPop, where PearPop is sort of taking that collab aspect of what's going on and adding a technology layer so that you can connect and collab without actually being there. And look at TikTok and their duets capability. You can do, you can collab and do things on TikTok without being physically in the same space in a way that you couldn't do through YouTube. So I think you're right about it. It still is sort of a, a sort of city-centric, location-centric world in many ways for creators. But now we're starting to see technology freeing some of that up as well as people realizing that I don't need to go to LA. I could be exactly. in wherever I want, or I can be in India. I do think the freewheeling aspect of just build it and move fast and break things in San Francisco and in the Bay Area is infiltrating some of that. It's also really interesting to see more and more of that startup ethos come to LA. You know, exactly. you're working for a startup in LA now. <laughs> Six or seven years ago, I was also doing venture investing with some of my first bosses in media. And you know, we're like, we got to do more in LA. There's some interesting stuff going on. It's still very media friendly. Now there's tons of startups there that have nothing to do with media. And there's, there's a real startup ethic happening there too. So I wonder that there's always, there's been a dichotomy between Silicon Valley and LA. There's been so many stories written about it and, you know, the coming together, which never really happens. And you look at things like, you know, you've got Quibi and you've got Vessel and you've got all these other attempts to merge them that, maybe didn't happen, but it's kind of happening a little organically. I don't know what you see on that. I mean, I think, I think you're spot on. Like, and 
And for me, you know, it's, it's, I'm not even judging LA for being like a sort of like a, a zero sum game mentality. You know, like there's a limit, like a, a limited number of seats at the movie or the TV table. So like, you know, it's like, if, if it's not me, it's going to be you. It's not going to be both of us. Right. So naturally the, the, the ecosystem extension, the mindset was not, you know, like paid forward style San Francisco. Hey, let's collaborate things because, you know, the incentive were not there. And so the whole industry sort of like uh, grew out of this. And right now with the career economy, you have a limited upside, right? Like, so if you, if you succeed as a creator and you're, we are in the same content category, if our content category explodes tomorrow, we actually be, like become better off altogether. So therefore the incentive structure changes, the mindset changes, but those creators who are living in this positive sum game of reality are living in a city that still works with zero sum game. And so like, that's the sort of tension that I see happening right now where a lot of managers are thinking about like old school talent and, you know, they're, they're not collaborative. They're not paid forward. They're like a little bit suspicious, et cetera. Uh, and there's like a couple of managers that have this startup mentality and they see each other like as more like, like, uh, uh, you know, like partners with the others, et cetera, et cetera. They are sharing deals. They are sharing, you know, resources. They're, they're doing things that we know from San Francisco. So for me, I think that's just a personal opinion. I think that this is the biggest change because it's a mindset shift and mindset shift are more powerful than most things. So that's why like I, I was asking this question to you because you see both worlds and you see both worlds with enough perspective to actually understand it from like a high definition. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, thinking about it the way you laid it out, scarcity versus abundance, right? You know, in the in the old Hollywood world, it was scarcity, scarcity of seats at the table, writing room, butts in seats, the movie slates and TV slates are only so many, so many slots to go around versus the platforms that we built in Silicon Valley all about abundance. It's like the, the only gating factor is the number of hours that 7 billion people on the planet have exactly. every day, right? That's a lot. I don't think we're going to get there. Uh, and I agree with you on zero sum in the early days of revision three. I would talk to agents and managers and it was really clear that many of them, most of them were like, I win, you lose style of folks. And, you know, one of the, I'm not going to name names, but um, one of the really I win, you lose style of, you know, talent agent manager who was very involved in MCNs early on is continuing to build really cool stuff. And I think is really starting to, it has, has realized and embraced what you said that it's like, we need to work together and all grow together. And that's the way we win. I don't, I still think LA is very much I win, you lose, but I see it changing you know, I'm not in the middle of it. I am in the middle of it somewhat, but not as much in the middle of it as I used to be. It's good to hear from your perspective that you're seeing it change as well. And that links back to the question, I mean, that links to the next question, talking about sharing and especially sharing the upside. Uh, I mean, on your newsletter, and, and I invite everyone to actually uh, subscribe to your newsletter, on LinkedIn, you know, I think one of the easiest ways to go to your profile on LinkedIn and then subscribe, it's called Inside the Creator Economy. You said, all roads lead back to the concept that everyone is becoming an equity owner. Again, music to my ears. I realized that that was an extension of my insights around MCN Revision 3, which led and ultimately sold to Discovery in 2012. And you're talking about like working with creators, but without having your incentives aligned. And so instead of like promising a bigger pet check than YouTube, you said that you should have aligned incentive with equity. And this sort of like goes to a question that like, you know, means should you have done like a, 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 a revision tree uh, token, you know, and put it like uh, uh, on the blockchain in order to uh, to get people aligned, creators aligned? And should you do it also with Bitcoin? Like what the, what would the Bitcoin look like uh, today if you could do one straight away? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, and this was, you know, whenever you do anything and, and you finish it or whenever I do, I, I look back like, oh, what worked? What didn't? What would I change? And I, and, you know, I, revision three was, I was first time CEO, first time at a venture back startup, you know, learned about what, you know, employee stock option plans were and learned about setting aside equity for employees and changing that pool and all that. But what I realized eventually was that as, as I wrote there, we would have been better off if I was able to expand my ESOP to include the creators that I brought in. And, you know, we had a couple of situations where we had amazing creators. They came in, we grew together, they became awesome. I mean, Epic Mealtime is one example, but they outgrew what we were able to do and they got a better offer from somebody else, you know, whether it was a zero sum person or not. It's just, we we're all competing too. 
And uh, had I been able to give, you know, these folks a piece of the company, we would have been aligned and we would have, we would have had our interests aligned. And I, you know, I like to think, and you know, who knows if that's that the ones that ended up leaving for what they perceived as brighter shores would have been better served than that. And I think, you know, fast forward to VidCon, you know, we're now part of Viacom CBS. So we are part of a big public company. So it's not like I'm going to be able to mint my own coin and give it out to folks. But it, I've also thought that with, you know, the early days of VidCon. And again, Hank and John couldn't do it because there was no crypto at the time. Um, all right. Yes, Bitcoin, you know, maybe yeah, there was a beginning. Technically, so, right? but like, yeah, really, really a stretch for sure. Yeah, really. I mean, look, there, there were no wallets. There was no, there was no, it was very difficult to do. We'll put it that way. But I think absolutely. And, uh, if, you know, you're going to start, um, um, an event like VidCon today and it didn't exist and you could create a, some, some tokens or some other way to get your speakers and creators aligned and then ways to, as the event company grew, that it would also, confer, you know, growth would uh, accrue to the people that come and participate and support. I think it's great. I mean, I would also make it part of the tickets that we sell, right? So buy a ticket, but, you know, for an extra dollar, you get a Bitcoin or something like that. And then it also aligns you as an attendee with what you're building. So who knows? There could be a way to do that with NFTs as well. I'm throwing some ideas around, which I'm not ready to kind of roll out yet, but there could be some interesting things there too. So absolutely aligning incentives with your customers, with your participants is there's so much you can do with it. And I just wish those tools were available to us at Revision 3 and, you know, for Hank and John as they were building VidCon too. And so technically, I mean, you know, you're not going to do a VidCoin. So that that's, you know, understandable. Um, but theoretically, um, I mean, not theoretically, like what's, what's next, uh, for, for VidCon, you know, without like the, the blockchain options, et cetera, what's next in the, in the future five years. And, and, you know, like I had like a thought where, where for me, you know, the, the musicians obviously have their events, it's a festival, they perform, you know, and everything, uh, the, the developers have like the hackathon, et cetera. Like it's sort of like this performance thing, uh, uh, as well. For creators, it's, it's something, you know, new altogether. So you cannot just put a creator on a panel and just be like, do like a, a fireside chat. And that's not their way of expression. So like, what are you pioneering or what are you thinking about? Like something that could be native to the creator as like a performance event and how VidCon could actually potentially enable. Yeah, I think, look, where we're going with that, by the way, I don't want to shut the door on doing anything around crypto because it's, we think about it and talk about it all the time. It's just, we have, we have broader corporate partners that have to be on board with it. They can, you know, unlike a startup, we can't just go out and do it. Um, but to your point on where we're going, you know, look, we're continuing to bring what we think is the power of VidCon around the world. So we are a place to uh, celebrate, amplify, and, you know, in some ways, hopefully help grow the creator economy wherever we do a VidCon. And so, you know, this year we're currently actively planning face-to-face -face events in the U.S. And in October, uh, we're looking at doing Abu Dhabi and Mexico, um, very much so also this fall, as well as Singapore in Asia. And, we're planning a lot more around the world in the coming years. We think VidCon, as I said, you know, a little while ago, we should be everywhere that there are creators and communities and that we can help move that economy along. On top of that, you know, as we've done more virtual stuff, one of the things I said to the team that we started rolling out these live stream sessions, I said, look, we're not television. We're never be as as good as making video as the people and the creators that we're celebrating and including and inviting. So we shouldn't strive for that. We should strive to do what we do at VidCon, which is to bring the community together and the entire community, creators, fans, industry, and let them feed off of each other. And so that's sort of been part of our, you know, sort of managing ethos as we move forward. So I don't think you're going to see a VidCon video series or something that tries to replicate what creators do on their own under the VidCon umbrella. Because frankly, that's not us. Creators do a good, an amazing job building their communities, 
monetizing those communities, taking it public, you know, getting direct connections. We just want to be a place where that magic happens. And so we will continue to make that magic happen in real life. Now, there may be fun ways that we do that, but I wouldn't expect us to, I wouldn't expect you to see us, you know, have a VidCon show on Paramount Plus, for example. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. That's not, not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, it's like more like, you know, uh, um, live performance for creator. What does that mean? For sure. Like some people are, have decided that that means boxing. You know, uh, uh, some people have decided that that means live, uh, live on stage interaction with their fan, which is absolutely cool. Well, as that's well. what we do at VidCon. I mean, you exactly. see that happen there. And look, there, there are, there are great touring shows that have, that like, you know, look at Scribble Knots, right? Stuff that, uh, the odd ones out and a bunch of the other animators are doing. They're going, you know, it's great. And they're doing, you know, Couple thousand, five thousand people. Dan and Phil did a great tour around the world. Those things are great, but they're just one and or just a handful of creators, which is is awesome for the experience. But it's a two or three hour experience, and that's great. But we try and bring the entire community together. We do performances. Uh, we bring the guys, you know, the folks that the the guys and girls from Scribble Knots. We bring them together. Uh, and do stuff with them together and separately, and they roll out what they do. And and I'm not sure we're ever going to do live boxing, but yeah. <laughs> last, you know, 2019, we built a sport court with Nike at VidCon, and we had Giannis, I can't pronounce his last name, basketball player, playing basketball with David Dobrik. So, and, and we allowed fans to come in and do the same thing. So in as much as we can do and enable that, we're going to continue to do and enable and lean into it. Um, the question I'm going to ask is, a technical question because you created the event and i wanted to get some people on stage but i cannot because you're the only admin so oh my god i'm the only owner <laughs> yeah, no worries. okay no worries. so All you right. can make me an admin by just holding my you know on my yes. picture um and then i'll, I'll try to get uh, oh i can block in. you too that's gonna be yes I'm exactly gonna, i'm making you the moderator sorry about that i have yeah. no idea how that happened but there you go no, 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 absolutely, because you, you created the room. And so, like, okay, I have... Actually, I opened question. the room. You created the room. Ex is exactly. <laughs> and so the last question, and for the people who want to ask a question, I'm going to put you on stage. Um, but for the last question, so the people who are shy are taking courage to actually ask the question. Um, uh, it would be like, if, and you're absolutely happy at VidCon, you know, it's a great company, you have amazing plans in the future, but if you would create like a creator economy startup today you know if if it was one of the of the company that has been created like for the past five years like which one would it be you know which one would you have loved to actually co-founded uh you know like uh today i don't know i come up with new ideas every week i'm like <laughs> as oh. i do stuff whether it's on the newsletter the podcast i'm like that's a great idea for a startup um which one would i do you know the Ones that are helping creators build their own life, because I really believe that we're fundamentally, I mean, fundamentally, I'm about helping creators create. So what are the things that allow them to do that? Well, you guys are one of them, certainly at Jelly Smack, the company you're at now. I think some of the financial stuff that we're seeing, whether it's at Stir or Creator Cash or, uh, or Carrot, those are really interesting. Uh, I think the things that allow, the things that allow creators to continue to develop and monetize what they're doing, I think is really interesting. You know, helping creators build their own brands, helping creators do, um, build communities. I mean, look, I've, I've been fascinated and entranced by Discord's opportunity in the creator economy for the last four or five years. You know, we, they, we actually got them to come in and sponsor our online stuff, VidCon Now, uh, last summer, but I've been talking to them since like 18, 19. So that idea of, of, you know, synchronous and asynchronous communities that creators own. Uh, I would have loved to have been at the early days of Discord and said, you can go run the gaming. I'm going to run the creator side for you. That would have been super fun. Wow. Hey, Jim. Uh, how's it going? Yeah. How's it um, going? Yeah, pretty fascinating. As someone who participated twice at VidCon, I think also in an exhibitor one year, I wonder what, what are your thoughts about audio creators, like on this platform? Is that something, I don't know if ever happened, like with podcasters or it did happen, but is this something you're looking to incorporate as well? Absolutely. Um, audio is, as audio is developed, it's going to be a big portion of, uh, what we do. We've had, um, we've had sessions on podcasting actually in London. 
which would have rolled out to other events if there had been other events in 2020. We had a podcasting theater where we actually had, uh, we opened it up to any of the creators or speakers could have do their podcast live. I think you'll see some of that happen in the U.S. I don't want to give anything away this year. We are doing sessions where we, you know, have reached out to some of the leaders in the audio space to come to our face-to-face events. We did a really interesting day or and uh, additional sessions on audio for VidCon now a little earlier this year. I met amazing startups from Spoon to Breaker. We brought them on and, and a bunch of others that I'm sorry I didn't mention your company. Uh, we brought them on to talk about what they're doing. So to me, the ability to build a community around yourself and to create what you want to do and, and connect with people globally is what we celebrate. And we celebrate that in real life. So as audio becomes more and more of an amazing thing, whether it's on Clubhouse or on Fireside or on, 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 you know, Spoon or on Racket, we're going to continue to celebrate that and develop it and start to bring the creators that are building celebrity and building big communities there as well to VidCon. Jordan, welcome on stage. What's your question for Jim? How's it going? Uh, thank you for bringing me up. I was thinking about this a lot recently, uh, especially with like Logan Paul boxing and everything. Um, when do you think we're going to have creators like a Logan Paul, a David Dobrik and others that are really going to be at the level or surpass athletes like a LeBron James, Ronaldo or Messi? Because I think that's coming very soon. But do you think that day's already here or is coming like a few years down the line? Yeah, it's a good question. It depends on how you measure uh, at the same level. I think if you look at the connections and the communities globally and audiences that David Dobrik or Logan Paul or some of those other top creators have, I think they are in many ways at the same level as a LeBron James or as a Tom Brady or whatever. It's just that because sport, they, you know, they're obviously making a lot more money and because of the way sport is and because it's so television heavy. In fact, it's saving in many ways, many parts of the television industry. But I, I think you know, it would be an interesting thing to do, um, to do like name recognition globally. Someone want to do a global survey? Somebody got money to talk to everybody in the world? Ask them, you know, a whole bunch of names, including some of the names you mentioned, and see who has a higher recognition score and then cut it by, you know, eight by 10 to 25, 25 to 45 and 45 and up. And I'll bet you see that the younger you are, the more likely that these top online creators are at the same level. The other thing I think that's going to be really interesting is now that at least in the US, NCAA athletes have their name, image and likeness given back to them. And they're starting to become social media stars in and of their own right and incented to build it and own it themselves. That the lines between the LeBrons and the Dobricks are going to blur more increasingly anyway. So it, it may be in five or 10 years that you can't really tell the difference. Yeah, and I was just thinking with, uh, like, even if you look at the Ball Brothers, uh, what they're doing, the big baller brand, that somebody like a David Dobrik or a Logan Paul may be better at moving product very soon than a LeBron James does for Nike. That's totally. I mean, totally. I mean, look at Mr. Beast and what he's doing with Beast Burger. And... Mr. Beast, by the way, launched in Espanol. Um, uh, it's not Senor Bestia. It probably should be, but it's Mr. Beast <laughs> in Espanol. And that's being, uh, the friend of mine's company, Unilingo, is actually doing the translations. And in two weeks, they're up to 750,000 subs and they've got a video that's already got 5 million views. So the power of the Mr. Beast brand is now spreading around the world in those languages in a really interesting way. That's another sort of startup that, could be fun to be part of back to your question, Hugo, that, you know, isn't doing what Jelly Smack is doing, but it is a, in a similar vein. That's really Absolutely. interesting. You should, you should definitely, I mean, if you don't create a company, you should start a fund, you know, that, that'll be interesting. And I welcome my friend Roberto on stage. If you have a question for Jim, my friend. Hey, Roberto. Hey. Good to see you. Good to see you, Jim. So we don't, we cannot hear you, Roberto. Wait, can you hear me now? Yep. yep. Okay, so yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, Jim, no, it's good to see you here too. Uh, it feels like we just end up playing rounds of tag every every event. <laughs> totally. Right? Uh, but yeah, no, I love everything that you've been saying. It's been fascinating hearing about the roots of VidCon 
Um, I've had the pleasure not only at attending every VidCon since, uh, I believe, 2016, but I've had the pleasure of speaking both at the uh, physical event and at the virtual event. And I love the talk about the expansion of VidCon, its foundations, and everything that you are looking at. So I guess my question is, with you having that that top-down point of view, but also seeing the evolution of this and being in the industry so long, what do you think is necessary for the future infrastructure of the creator economy? It's a good question. Uh, and by the way, if you don't know Roberto, uh, Roberto's amazing speaker and amazing innovator, great teacher, great company builder. So, um, so we're so lucky and honored to have you be a part of the VidCon community. Um, but I think, look, I think it just comes down to money. I think it comes down to getting paid, right? I mean, you can be the best, cre- best creator in the world, but if you're sitting on a platform, I won't name any names, and you're pouring your heart and soul out and building community and making great videos, and you're not getting compensation for that, something is wrong. When you look at companies here, here. that are making boatloads of money, no names named, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and are giving away less than 1% of that to the creators that they're building their company on, something is wrong that has to be fixed. I couldn't agree more. So what do you think we can do, aside from obviously, the, I see more platforms adopting creator monetization, which is great. I don't think that any platform is as generous as YouTube per se, but we won't get into names or revenue splits. But um, I, I feel that I agree with you 100% that that's important. What can be done uh without necessarily the platforms themselves having to change and adopt that. What can be done? Sorry, what can be Uh, done or built by companies and independent creators and entrepreneurs? What can be built that can help give creators more funding and more equity? and, And how do we accomplish that? How do we accomplish greater creator equity? So the corollary to what, um, what I just talked about is the fact that the creator, that the, these platforms are just proxies for audiences for the creators. Facebook owns your audience. Instagram owns your audience. TikTok owns your audience. YouTube owns your audience. You don't own your audience as a creator. You don't have direct connections to them. So what we can build are better ways for creators to have direct connections with their community. It doesn't have to be all of them. Maybe it's just the top 5%, 10%, 20%. The more that you have those direct connections and you're, you're interacting directly with the community of people that love you, the better you'll be able to develop this, the products and revenue and sources that you need to move forward. So this is where I sort of alluded to this with Discord, but it is, you know, it's what BitCloud is doing. It's what Rally is doing. It's what, um, Patreon is doing in many ways uh, as an OG version out here, but everybody who is helping creators connect directly to their audience and then build the value together. Those are the things we need to build because the platforms are in business to make money for their investors. They're not in business to make creators, you know, rich or make money except when those interests align. And when they don't align, as we've seen on YouTube with demonetization and other things, when they stop aligning... You're not going to get it there. So you've got to own the connection with your audience and we've got to build products that allow creators to do that. I couldn't agree more, Jim. And this is definitely something that I think um, should be an ongoing conversation. And again, just thank you to everything you do to the community. Well, rather for the community. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, Everything you do for the community, everything you do for creators and also just like your passion. It's very... It's very rare to find somebody that, you know, comes from the C-suite, comes from that world that truly actually understands the culture of content creators and also respects it in the way that you do. And what you do in terms of how you also stand up for creators, it doesn't go unnoticed, Jim. <laughs> cool. I appreciate that. And I will, I will tell you a short little story that, you know, the reason why I'm so passionate about creating and creators and all that is because I've been one for a long time. When I first started, like I had this vision when I was first starting in my career that at some point I was doing computer stuff and building systems and writing programs that I get a column in a magazine like PC Week someday. And then, you know, maybe when I was 40 and then when I was like in my late 20s, PC Week hired me to run their labs and gave me a column. 
And then two years later, I went to the second WC3 uh, forum, which was all about, which is the first internet forums where we started talking about the internet and, and browsers and all that. And I realized that, you know, I had this dream of being a columnist in a, in a computer magazine and that a gatekeeper gave me that. And I was so amazing. And then two years later, anybody in the world could be a techie and a vlogger and a blogger, well, blogger, then vlogger. And, you know, I had two choices to make. I, I had a choice to make. I could either embrace that or do everything I can to, like, ignore it. And I was like, I embraced it. I love the fact that Gizmodo and Engadget and other things came up and that you could be a tech geek anywhere and reach an audience. And so I continue to be passionate about that. I think that is so important. And, I mean, you know, Roberto, you, you literally stole my outro. I was going to say the exact same thing, so I couldn't agree more. And I just want to uh, be mindful of uh, of Jim's time. And, and I'm just, we're just going to take like the two last questions real quick. Uh, Andre, welcome to the stage, my friend. Tell us. Hey, hey, Hugo. Do we skip Fernando? I don't want to skip. No, 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 we don't. We don't. Fernando will be... Um, Amazing. Um, I was just here to stop the LA slander, to be honest, um, as an LA native. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I agree. Like, but one of my favorite parts in Jim, you can go to this too, is, is the, uh, the accessibility, right? Like you talk about Atlanta becoming the next hotspot for creators and specifically creators of color. And that's because Atlanta in itself is a, is a place where you know, it's more affordable, right? So you talk about places like San Francisco, Austin, Nashville, Los Angeles, London, etc. So moving in internationally and then the US, but going to tackle accessibility and affordability for those who can't afford the, you know. Absolutely. It's a really good question. And, and we, one of the reasons why we were so excited to launch VidCon now, um, and we've been talking about it for a long time, was because it allowed us to bring the 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 magic, we think, of VidCon to people for free. I mean, everything we've done online and will continue to do online is free. Anybody can get it. Um, you know, we always, we believe in that, um, you know, we always, we believe in that democratic access to what we do, democratizing the creator economy is kind of part of our, our mission statement as well. And, you know, we realize that VidCon is, you know, you've got to travel there when it's in LA, it can be expensive. Although we have single day tickets that are much less expensive. And once you buy a ticket to VidCon, everything else you get, so we don't charge extra for meet and greets. We don't charge extra for the dances and parties and performances that we do. But bringing the power of VidCon digitally, whether it's when VidCon isn't happening face-to-face, -face, but also you'll see us do more as we do an event in Anaheim or an event in Abu Dhabi or an event in, in Singapore of creating a digital ticket that would allow you to... You can't, you, you can't get the full experience of a face-to-face -face event digitally, but then there are things you can do digitally that you can't do at a face-to-face -face event. So we'll continue to make that as easy and inexpensive and accessible as possible to people because we do know the education, the fun, the experience, the community, the insight, really the more we can bring that out to people around the world and, and, and do it in a way that's either free or affordable, the better it's going to be for the creator economy at large. Thanks so much. Uh, my quick two cents too on when you sold to Viacom CBS or formerly Viacom, um, I was actually covering Brent Weinstein's desk. He called me. He says, if you leak anything that you hear <laughs> on this desk today, I promise you. And I was like, no, I won't say anything, obviously. I was a young assistant at the time. And then, of course, it breaks in variety anyways. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, I, sometime if you see me at VidCon, I'll, I'll give you my two cents on how that happened and why. <laughs> I love and, and why it was a good thing. And I'm glad you didn't do it. Um, but, uh, um, and it, look, the casting of aspersions on LA, LA is great. There's so many amazing things and amazing creators, and amazing stuff that happens there. It just shouldn't be the only. Amen. Ver Fernando, last question. Welcome, my friend, Sage. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jim, for, for the wonderful, uh, the wonderful session here. Um, so Roberto asked my question better than I ever could. So I'll just uh, adapt real quick and ask, you know, based on your answer of creator ownership, increased creator ownership, um, how do you see this phenomenon, you know, in the next five, 10 years, how do you see that affecting an event like VidCon, if, if in any way, um, as creators gain more direct ownership over their audience? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I think we could just continue to, we'll have to continue to reflect the state of the creator economy where it is. And who knows, maybe that there are more, um, this is just off the top of my head, I have no idea if this makes sense or not, but maybe there are more sort of, you know, gatherings that happen that are just for the people that are in that 
ownership group. And, you know, we already do birds of a feather sessions and creator chats and things like that. But you see that more interesting where, whether it's at VidCon or the day before, you know, if you're part of the, the Senor Bestia community and you paid into that, there's a private hangout that happens. Or it's not private, but it's like just open and some people can go, some people can't. I mean, I don't know how we would do that, but, you know, we'll evolve as the world evolves. I do think that, you know, some of the changes that we're going to see that'll be interesting, if we get more in a multiverse style, it's even going to tie into, you know, the stuff that Andre was talking about, where as we get more and more of a a multiverse experience out there, there's probably going to be ways for people to participate in VidCon even more like they were there, but wherever they are in the world. And we've got to expand and include that as well. So, a borderless VidCon, not, you know, from a, from a experience perspective, I see that happening in the next five to 10 years too. Awesome. I mean, that's the perfect way to end, to be frank. That's the, one of the best message uh, um, that you could have gotten up there. Uh, I mean, I, I just want to say a huge thanks. Your, your, uh, your enthusiasm uh, um, is, is contagious, to be frank. Uh, your curiosity is endless. And, you know, I think this is going to be an amazing episode. It's going to be available on Creator Economy club.com in a couple of weeks and uh and yeah it was a pleasure jim to be frank thank you so, so much to see you at, to, so happy to see you in real life at vidcon you know for the first time in a couple of years and yeah let's uh let's wrap it up it's been a pleasure for everyone thanks for your time it's always an absolute honor to have time from anyone so thank you again and uh, and see you next week yeah, thanks everybody. It's been a blast and happy to see you all at VidCon either virtually or in face-to-face at some point somewhere in the next year or two. October 22nd. See you there. In the U.S., in Anaheim. Happiest <laughs> place on in Earth. In Anaheim. Absolutely. <laughs> ciao, ciao, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for having taken the time to listen through the entire episode. We love it. And that probably means you liked the episode. So if you do please consider rating us five stars on Apple Podcast. It helps and always, always means a lot. Thank you very much and see you very soon.